evening. My name is Nick Caudry. I'm the head of LSE's Department of Media and Communications, and I'm pleased to welcome so many of you to the first of our public lectures this term. We're delighted tonight to welcome one of the world's most distinguished scholars of communication, Professor Michael Schutzen. He is Professor of Journalism in the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University, where he's also Adjunct Professor in the Department of Sociology, as well as Professor Emeritus at the University of California, San Diego. Michael Schutzen is the winner of fellowships from the Guggenheim and the MacArthur Foundations. He's been a residential fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. He's a leading commentator on the rapid transformations in the media and communications industries, and especially on their implications for our public world and our common culture. He's particularly known for his commitment to providing a long-term historical perspective on today's dilemmas of communication. He's the author or editor of seven books, uh, sorry, ten books, on a wide range of topics from the sociology of journalism, Discovering the News, 1978, the Sociology of News, 2003, on the history of advertising, Advertising, the Uneasy Persuasion from 1984, and on the future of democracy itself, The Good Citizen from 1998, and Why Democracies Need an Unlovable Press, 2008. All his new books are eagerly awaited, so we're excited tonight to have him present from his new book, just out from Harvard University Press, The Rise of the Right to Know, which you can purchase signed copies of here tonight. The title of his lecture is Expectations of Openness in an Age of Secrecy, Where the Right to Know Comes From, and he'll speak for around 50 minutes, leaving plenty of time for questions. Michael, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Um, thank you all for coming, uh, and uh, I'm very happy to be here and to discuss with you um, what I call, thank, thanks to the editors at Harvard University Press, because I did not know what to call this book, but uh, they suggested the rise of the right to know, and I thought that had a nice ring to it. So um, it, let me take you back because this is a historical study, to say January 1st, 1960, uh, in the United States, land of the free, home of the brave, um, where a voter could not learn how his representatives in the House of Representatives in Congress voted on important amendments to bills coming to the floor of the Congress. Um, in that year, 12% of doctors who learned that a patient had cancer would tell the patient, you have cancer, 12%. Um, others were not so informed. There was not a single book written by women, for women, about women's health. Consumers who went to the supermarket for cereal and milk, could not determine which of the boxes of cereal was the more economical, not unless they could easily do long division and um, divide $2.49 by 12 and three quarters ounces and compare that to the uh, similar packages but with 
different prices and different numbers of ounces uh, next to them. Which cereal had the least sugar? No way to find that out. And as for the milk container, it was then, like today, stamped with a do not sell after date, but it was written in code so that the store employees and not the consumer could read it. In that world, a number of terms familiar to us as if they had been with us always uh, were unknown. Whistleblower, for one. Coming out of the closet. Informed consent, that term which had come into use by the 50s in law, but was not in general usage. The phrase right to know had come into use among a small group of activist journalists in the early 1950s, seeking to open government to greater scrutiny. But it was not in general use, and it had no legal or judicial tradition. By 1980, that world I've just described no longer existed. The votes of representatives in Congress were available to their constituents, not 12%, but 98% of doctors routinely told their cancer patients that they had cancer. Our Bodies Ourselves was a bestseller. Packaging disclosed much more information than ever before about what was in the package, how nutritional it might be. And unit pricing was in basically every large supermarket in the country that made comparative shopping on the basis of price possible. The leading candidates for the presidency met for the first time in the history of the presidency in debate, as it happened on television. Um, it was the first time, if you're thinking, no, 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 it was Lincoln and Douglas. Um, they did not meet running for the presidency. They met running for the Senate uh, at, in Illinois at a time when um, the people in general did not, in fact, vote for senators. Uh, the senators were elected by state legislatures. So it was a very different scene. So the Kennedy-Nixon debate in 1960 was a, a, a dramatic change. Uh, in, and it led to what some media scholars have, uh, Daniel Dayan and Elihu Katz, have called uh, the uh, breed, that, that it helped breed the expectation of openness in politics and diplomacy. Now, I, I'm not about to argue that um, the increase in openness, which is really my topic here, is always a good thing. Some limitations on disclosure are essential to a civilized society and a civil society, but others are on their face and indignity to democracy. Many such practices have been routine throughout history, including American history. What I want to focus on is what changed 1960 to 1980 or thereabouts, um, especially in the years 1966 to 1974, and then to try to understand why, which is a complicated and for me, unfinished effort, um, and I think you'll see why, because each of the changes I'm going to talk about had its own local 
purposes and its own reasons for being. Uh, they, it's not like everyone signed up for an openness social movement. Um, it didn't happen that way. It happened in discrete arenas and for different reasons. So why did they all happen to happen at the same time? Um, seeing as I am in the UK, I should um, say that what the change I'm, I, I think I've identified in this period in American history uh, is a change in what Raymond Williams uh, called the structure of feeling. Um, and it's something that we think of very often as very, very difficult to change. Culture, preconceptions, prejudices, beliefs, values, deep-seated habits and ways of being are resistant to change. Um, Hillary Clinton said as much two weeks ago. Uh, she was quoted as follows. Uh, I don't believe you change hearts, she said. I believe you change laws, you change allocation of resources, you change the way systems operate. And um, I, I think I know what she means by that. And it bespeaks a pragmatism which I, for one, admire in her. And yet I don't think it's the whole story. Sometimes hearts do change. Sometimes assumptions that seem implacable uh, change, say that the assumption, underlying assumption, that a woman cannot and should not be president, it weakens or it disappears. Sometimes within a generation, people who took it for granted that homosexuality is immoral and unnatural change their minds and their hearts. So how can we understand this important change, this one about openness or transparency, toward a presumption of openness, toward a belief that people should have or do have something we could call a right to know? Let, let me, first of all, um, lay aside a couple of possible answers to that or answers that might come to mind, that have come to other people's minds at any rate. One is that there's nothing to explain uh, after all, uh, we, we, there was an enlightenment in the 18th century, and the founding fathers, the American society, were enlightenment thinkers. Um, we've always had a right to know. It's sort of implied there in the Constitution, isn't it? Uh, uh, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or of the press. You can go online um, and learn that Thomas Jefferson said... Information is the currency of democracy. I was troubled by that line because by my theory, he shouldn't have said that. Um, and if you go a little further online, you'll find out that no, he actually didn't say that. He couldn't have. I mean, I, I'm doubtful about the use of the word in information by him, and I'm also doubtful about the use of the word currency, but I'm sure about the use of the word democracy. He would not have used it in a positive way. Uh, he thought he lived in a republic, and that's what he had fought uh, a, a rev revolution uh, to ensure. But democracy suggested uh, mob rule to the founders. He would never have said that. But somebody did say it, and, he, and his name was Ralph Nader. Um, he wrote it 
1986 and a version of it in 1970. James Madison, you can also see uh, quoted over and over again, and the at least half a dozen of the members of Congress who voted in favor of the Freedom of Information Act in 1966 quoted the following line from Madison, a popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy or perhaps both. In this case, Madison actually did write that. Um, he wrote it in a letter to a friend in Kentucky who was uh, asking for his support for a bill that would provide public funding for elementary schools. Um, that's what Madison had in mind. Uh, the, the quote has been used over and over again um, by American politicians and others to promote something like the Freedom of Information Act or other efforts to get government to disclose to the public information that it holds. Madison had no idea of such a thing. That's not what he meant. Um, he, would he have approved it? I, I think it's very unlikely that he or Jefferson would have approved it. So I, I want to argue that we haven't always had it, that something really did happen in 1960 to 1980 or thereabouts, and there's something worth explaining here. Well, there's another view that the explanation, it, we do need to explain it, but it's simple. The internet did it. Didn't the internet do almost everything? Um, uh, well, it's done a lot, but in this case, it's easy to refute that notion since the efforts at these various reforms I'm talking about began in the 50s, early 60s. There was no internet until the 1970s. There was no web until about 1990 and so on. It didn't, it wasn't the internet. There's a third view, uh, and it's one I will be exploring more in the next 40 some minutes, uh, which is, it was the 60s. Um, and I give that view more credence, because that, in fact, that was the view that I had when I started this research. Um, I, I think it's not correct, uh, although it, it, there are elements of truth in it, but I'll, I'll show you, I think, that that cannot be a full explanation either. A landmark in the battle between secrecy and sunshine in government was the 1966 passage of the Freedom of Information Act and its substantial strengthening in 1974 in the wake of Watergate. Um, in, in the UK, uh, it came 34 years later, in 2000, and uh, and there are now about 100 Freedom of Information Acts around the world. The, the U.S. was the, basically the second in the world. We were beaten by Sweden by about 200 years. Well, actually, by exactly 200 years. There was a free, Swedish Freedom of Information Act in 1766. What all of these acts, or most of them at any rate, have in common um, is that they es establish a right of any person, that, that's the phrase in the American Act, any person, 
And I think the UK is similar, that you don't have to be a citizen, you actually don't have to be an adult, uh, you can be a, a foreign child national and still request information from the British government or the American government and expect a response. Um, if you don't like the response, that is, if, if some or all of the information you've requested is withheld by the agency that you've contacted, um, you can appeal that decision. And there are various ways of appealing the decision, and those differ a lot from one FOIA, or Freedom of Information Act, to another. But uh, what they all have in common is that there is recourse, um, and you can uh, take the government to court or to a tribunal of some sort that will adjudicate whether the information was withheld appropriately. Um, now, all of this should suggest to you, although I don't really think the, the Congress that passed the Act in 1966 thought about this very much, but it should suggest to you that this is going to cost some money. You're going to have to hire some bureaucrats, um, and someone is going to have to review the requests. There are, in fact, um, hundreds of thousands of requests that the American government receives every year um, from journalists, historians, corporations, prisoners, others uh, who might have reason to be seeking out information that is somewhere in some government um, file or database. Uh, responding to those requests has led the government to hire about 5,000 Freedom of Information Act officers. And the, the, the sheer uh, numbers are fairly impressive. In one year, just happened to have 2005 data, the Department of Defense alone processed 80,000 requests at a cost of $50 million through the, through the efforts of the several hundred FOIA officers who work only for the Department of Defense, sorry, who work only at the Department of Defense. They don't work for the Department of Defense. And for many FOIA officers, that's very important to them. They're loosely supervised by an Office of Information Policy in the Department of Justice and distributed across some 90 different executive agencies. Um, and the head of the agency or the cabinet officer in charge of the agency uh, is not able to veto the decision of the FOIA officer. Their loyalty is, in their own view, to the law, not to the agency where they are working. Now, what got me immediately away from the notion that, well, it was the 60s, was learning that this effort to get the Freedom of Information Act uh, passed began in 1953, uh, when most of the people who would later become leaders of the anti-war movement and other efforts of the, of the 60s were about six years old or so. Um, the key figure was John Moss, um, who you probably have not heard of, and most Americans, and like I would say 99.8% of Americans have never heard of, was a first-term congressman, Democrat, um, from Sacramento, who as a first-term congressman was assigned to the lowliest of 
congressional committees. That was the uh, Committee on the Post Office and the Civil Service. Now, at the time, uh, a Democratic president, Harry Truman, was, was just leaving office to be replaced by a Republican, uh, Dwight Eisenhower. And Truman was nonetheless still being, even as he was leaving office, he was still being attacked by Republicans for being soft on communism, um, uh, for not appropriately protecting federal employment from communists and communist sympathizers who got government jobs um, and who were not appropriately censured or dismissed when it was discovered where their political sympathies were. John Moss believed uh, that the Truman administration had been diligent in keeping communists out of the government and punishing those who were, in fact, uh, hired in the government. He wanted to show that employees in the civil service had been uh, dismissed in goodly number uh, by an appropriately attentive uh, federal administration under Truman. So he wrote to the Civil Service Commission. After all, he was on the committee that was supposed to supervise the Civil Service Commission and asked for information on employment and dismissals on the, for loyalty reasons. And he got a letter back from the commission that said, um, in probably a few more words than this, but no, we will not share that information with you. Now, I, 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 when I think about this moment, I picture uh, fiction, not, not reality. I picture the, the film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, I think John Moss was Mr. Smith, that is, a, a relatively naive believer in, in the civics textbook way that government should run. Um, and it didn't look like it was running that way. And he was appalled. It was the case, he said later, some years later, of a freshman member being outraged over executive arrogance. I have strong convictions that as a representative of the people, I had a right to know what goes on in government. And I have also a conviction that the people I represent need to know what goes on in government. What governs the disclosure of information to the public or the press or, or the legislative branch was an act called the Administrative Procedure Act of 1946. It required public disclosure of government records and this is the language of that act, except when secrecy in the public interest is required or when the information relates solely to the internal management of an agency or when there is good cause found to keep matters confidential. In other words, any agency could withhold anything anytime it felt like it. Um, in practice, as Moss put it sarcastically, but not unrealistically in a speech in 1959, federal officials make information available to the press always unless the information is restricted on grounds of security, unless the information is specifically restricted by law, such as personal income tax returns and trade secrets, unless the official decides that the information is merely preliminary, unless the official believes the information would cause controversy, unless the official believes release of the information is not timely, 
unless the official believes that the information might be misunderstood or misinterpreted by the people of the United States, or unless he feels merely that the release of the information would not be in the public interest. Moss found his rhetorical scaffolding in the language of the Cold War. He spoke repeatedly of what he called the paper curtain of executive secrecy in Washington, an obvious comparison to Soviet information control behind the Iron Curtain. He picked this up from journalists themselves, many of whom he brought before the committee to testify to cases where they themselves had requested information from government and been turned down. Uh, Moss directly accused the executive of using Soviet tactics, uh, attack, criticizing the Pentagon in 1959 for embarking on, quote, Soviet-style control of the news, giving out the good news and hiding the failures. It took Moss a dozen years of stubborn effort uh, but the Freedom of Information Act finally passed in 1966 and was signed uh, very reluctantly into law by President Lyndon Johnson. Um, Eisenhower had opposed this. Kennedy had been not very interested in it, and Johnson absolutely opposed it. Um, but what, there was overwhelming support in the Congress um, Democrat and Republican, as it happens. Um, and the Moss was chair of the, sub, the subcommittee on government information. The ranking Republican member of that committee is a name you know, Donald Rumsfeld. Um, he was a strong supporter of the Freedom of Information Act. He, he, mm -hmm. In a Tony Blair-like moment, I think, he, uh, in a, a memoir, he said he was not so sure he had made the right decision on that. <laughs> Uh, let me move from the Freedom of Information Act to de developments in consumer information. Uh, one thing President Kennedy did uh, in his last speech uh, in, 19, in the 1960 campaign for president, he said um, uh, that he wanted to be the consumer's representative in Washington. Um, he, that was the last he had to say about consumers uh, until 1962 when he sent a message to Congress proposing a consumer's bill of rights. Um, there were four rights. There was a right to safety, protection against hazardous products. There was a right to be heard in the formation of government policy. There was a right to choose among a variety of products. And there was a right to be informed. With the right to be informed clearly in mind, he specifically supported um, uh, by name several bills then underway going through the Congress um, on truth in lending and truth in packaging. But beyond that speech, that was the end of it in terms of his own involvement in, in consumer affairs and consumer rights until a few weeks before his assassination he contacted uh, the highest-ranking woman in his administration, who would go on to be the highest-ranking woman in the Johnson administration as well, uh, Esther Peterson. Esther Peterson was the Assistant Secretary of Labor and, um, and had been a, a labor organizer um, uh, 
uh, in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, he asked Peterson to be his consumer czar, um, keep doing her work at the, uh, in, in labor, but also be advising the White House on consumer issues. She was thinking this over when he went to Dallas and was killed. Uh, and then she says in a memoir that, that um, she pretty much forgot about it. Um, the new president, however, did not forget about it. And early in January, so this is like six or seven weeks after he's become president, Lyndon Johnson um, asks her to come to the, his Texas White House uh, on his ranch. Uh, you don't refuse a, uh, an invitation like that. She goes off to the Texas ranch. She has lunch with Lyndon and Lady Bird. Um, everything is very polite and friendly. Um, they discuss consumer issues. And then he says, um, uh, at the end of the lunch, he says, uh, Esther, I'd like to take you out front and meet some friends. So they go out to the front porch, and the press is assembled there. And according to the story, um, uh, President Johnson puts his arm around, actually, she was, he was very tall. She was quite tall, too. Uh, puts his arm around Esther Peterson and says, boys, this is my gal, and I want you to treat her right. And, um, and Esther, uh, uh, you might want to say a few words uh, to, to the press now about your new position. Um, I don't, she didn't have a chance. This is how he operated, apparently. There was no chance for her to say no. I don't think she would have said no, but anyway, there she was. She didn't know what to say. She mostly made her way through this um, well enough, except that she added a line about, I, and all of you consumers I want you, um, out there, uh, if you have any complaints, I want you to send them to me. Um, uh, rooms full of telegrams and letters and whatnot followed. I don't know how long it took them to work that out. But uh, she didn't actually last terribly long in that job. Um, uh, because she was too aggressive about s supporting consumers. In particular, there was, a, there was a, an effort at a, uh, a beef boycott because of high prices of beef. She endorsed it. The beef industry did not care for that. The beef industry was a big supporter of Lyndon Johnson, um, and Johnson's aides pretty much um, helped her out the door. Um, she went back to the Labor Department, but... She had come in the year, year and a half she was working in, as consumers are, become a quite notable figure in Washington. And she got an interesting letter from a guy named Paul Forbes, who was assistant to the president of Giant Food. Uh, Giant Food, for, uh, if you've lived in Washington, you probably know it. Uh, it's, it's one of the, I think, two largest supermarket chains in Washington, Northern Virginia, Maryland. Um, and Forbes said, we'd really like to show you how a big retail chain operates. Please come visit us. We'll take you in the back rooms. We won't hide anything. Um, by the way, we were big, my boss and I and others here, were big supporters of the New Deal. We're big friends of, of the great society efforts of Lyndon Johnson. 
we'll treat you well. So she does that, uh, takes the tour, and then they offer her a job. Um, they say, we would like you to be in charge of consumer policy at Giant Food. And she says, no. I mean, they're management. I'm labor. This is not going to work. Um, and several times they offer her the job, each time saying, really, you can do it your way. Several times she refuses. They offer it again. And at that point, she says, well, I don't know. Maybe they're serious. So she sits down with her political allies, in part, especially George Meany, uh, the head of the American Federation of Labor, and a young uh, lawyer and consumer advocate named Ralph Nader, who had just recently uh, come to some prominence. They both said, try it. So she did. And she spent the next four years at Giant Foods, uh, making pretty much every one of the reforms that I mentioned earlier. Um, there was what came to be called open dating, uh, not um, coded dating of perishable products. There came to be some of the first nutritional labeling in the country. Um, and there came to be what is called unit pricing, so you could compare across products, um, in addition to several other developments. But all of them really speaking to a kind of consumer right to know. Um, Paul Forbes remained a friend of Peterson's and sent her a, a Christmas poem in 1970, a bit of which I want to read to you. Once upon a noonday bleary, while I shuffled weak and weary through a pile of consumer complaints accumulated since the days of yore, Suddenly there was a brainstorm, far more welcome than any rainstorm, washing away the woes I know will now return no more. If customers are no more to pester, of course we ought to turn to Esther. There is no need to even test her, the chief consumer ambassador. Deck the store with open dating, unit pricing, consumer relating, with consumer compliments accumulating as they never have since days of yore, with telephone calls from customers happy, with even a chance for a noonday nappy, with a management less apt to slap me than they ever have been before. It was a, it was a big triumph. Everyone was happy. Um, and it's, it's interesting that the, this whole set of consumer practices that I, we absolutely take for granted has a specific moment, place, time, and origin in 1969, 1970, 1971, at Giant Food. Let me pause here to observe that both the Freedom of Information Act and more transparent supermarket practices were changes generated by elites. In the first case, Congress sought to use transparency as a device to keep tabs on the executive. Uh, remember that FOIA covers in the U.S., covers executive agencies, not the Congress, not the judiciary. Uh, and think about who these people were who, who sponsored these developments. John Moss was born in 1913. Uh, so he came of age politically, say, came of age in the 1930s. Um, Esther Peterson was older 
She was born in 1906. Uh, she was well into her labor activism in the 1930s. Um, Henry K. Beecher, I'm not going to talk much about him, but um, he was a, a, an anesthesiologist at Harvard Medical School who in 1966 wrote a paper about medical research practices in which people were sometimes injected with live cells of, uh, of serious illnesses, um, other dangerous interventions, and were not informed at all of what was going on in the medical research. Um, this was the breakthrough piece of writing that led to informed consent requirements and, and, uh, you, and these institutional review boards that a lot of us in higher education find um, distressing and a big pain to fill out forms and get approval for biomedical or social research that we do, um, but it protects people who are, be, who are being researched about. Um, uh, he was born in 1904. Um, Gaylord Nelson, I may say a word about him later, uh, was a senator from Wisconsin who was the key person in making what would become the Environmental Impact Statement, which became law in 1970, making it a public document so that government agencies before they could build a dam or drain a swamp or even build an office building, had to write and make public uh, information about the likely environmental impact of the action they proposed to take. The, the, most of the legislators who had started out on this path toward what became the environmental impact statement had no thought about its being public. They, were, they were, thought it would be a useful document so that different government agencies could comment on uh, one another and keep bad things from happening. But what kept bad things from happening, or kept some bad things from happening as badly as they might have been otherwise, is that environmental organizations were empowered by the publicness of this document to sue the government. Uh, to either to modify the proposed pl plans or to scuttle them entirely. Um, Gaylord Nelson was born in 1916. He became um, important also several months after this act passed as the, the, the individual most responsible for inventing Earth Day. Uh, he had some interest in the public's being involved, but more important than Earth Day, it seems to me, was this tiny additional word that he inserted into the law, that the, these detailed statements of environmental impact should be public, and so on. All of which is to say that some of the key leaders who um, had a role in providing an institutional infrastructure for a changing structure of feeling were not people of the 60s. They were people who lived into the 60s, uh, but had come of age sometimes decades earlier. Uh, let me 
talk about one, one more, uh, because this is this is the one that that I found so uh, uh, surprising, distressing, uh, that as late as 1969. Uh, when a bill came before the House of Representatives and was moving on its way to a vote on the floor and there were amendments proposed, the House had a procedure by which it would convene not as the House but as the Committee of the Whole House, it was called, um, is called still, uh, which operated by different rules, did not require the same large uh, quorum to meet, and, um, and the voting on the amendments sometimes on incredibly important bills about defense appropriations or desegregation or other uh, key issues of the day. Uh, Those votes were secret. Um, They're not secret anymore. They they stopped being secret uh, after the Legislative Reorganization Act of 1970. So let me just give you a, a, a little flavor of what the Congress, in this case the House of Representatives, looked like and felt like before this. Um, We have a a lovely little memoir from um, uh, Congressman Tom Foley, later Speaker of the House, who was a new congressman in 1965. And like, again, he was assigned to a committee. In his case, it was the Committee on Agriculture. Um, and he remembers his first day in the Committee on Agriculture listening to an address by uh, the chair of the committee, like the chair of almost all committees in the Congress at that time, a Southern Democrat. name was Harold Cooley. Um, Harold Cooley addressed the new members of the Committee on Agriculture as follows. I hate and detest hate and detest to hear senior members of this committee interrupted by junior members of this committee. You new members, in particular, will find that you will require some time, some of you months, others of you regrettably probably years, before you develop sufficient knowledge and experience to contribute constructively to our work. In the meantime, silence and attention Silence and attention is the rule for new members of this committee. So that was the, that was the informal structure of um, being a member of Congress in those days. The formal structure was uh, that, that you could vote secretly. Um, now, the problem, there were several problems with this. Um, one was that there were a lot of new liberal northern urban members of Congress elected in 1958, 1960, 1962. They had a majority, in fact. They could pass legislation, except this committee structure strangled them. Um, and they were, they, were in, they were looking for some ways to change that. Why can a majority not pass laws? Um, civil rights was one of, one of their key concerns. They didn't know the answer to that, but they had a mechanism called the Democratic Study Group. It was the first 
ongoing caucus, apart from the party caucuses in the Congress ever, um, that was formed in 1959. And some years later, they hired a, a former journalist named Dick Conlon uh, as a full-time executive director of the Democratic Study Group. And Conlon, imbued with um, the ideals of American journalism, like objectivity, said what we need to do is really good research so that our own members are, are informed about the pros and cons of different bills coming before them. There, there, was, there was no such thing at the time. Um, they put out these research reports, and they were so good and so, in fact, objective that the Republicans wanted to, to read them too. Uh, lobbyists wanted to read them. It, he was very successful, Conlon, in what he did. Um, but when this Legislative Reorganization Act was uh, passing and the Democratic Study Group wanted to add some amendments to open up voting, among other things, and open up the Congress in other ways. Um, uh, he didn't, he wasn't sure how to sell that. Um, he, he really wanted to do it for a peculiar reason. Uh, I initially assumed he thought Congress should be more democratic. No, he was like the others in wanting liberal legislation to be passed. How do you pass liberal legislation? Well, uh, it wasn't easy because in the Committee of the Whole, where votes were not known, uh, the, the well-entrenched Southern Democrats always turned up to vote, 90% of the time. Um, the Democratic Study Group members, the, the newer, more liberal, more northern, more urban uh, group of congressmen, sometimes went to vote in the Committee of the Whole, maybe 50% of the time. Other times, you know, they were back, they were running for re-election and back in their constituencies, um, or they were a softball game, or who knows where they were, but they weren't on the floor on the Committee of, of the Whole. And what, what um, Conlon really wanted to do was to find a mechanism that would force them um, into voting. Um, he knew they would vote the right way, but the trick was to get them to vote at all. Uh, so he was discussing this with a journalist friend, a wire service reporter, um, and again, this is according to a, a bit of memoir that Conlon left. Um, uh, they're having this conversation, and, and the wire service reporter is falling asleep. And uh, basically, the, the guy says to Conlon, he said, Dick, come on, this is such inside Washington stuff. No journalist will ever write about it. I mean, congressional reorganization, procedures, uh, committee of the whole, nobody understands this, nobody cares. And um, the Conlon keeps after him until finally the wire service reporter says, uh, okay, you know, I surrender. Um, Dick, wh why don't you call them anti-secrecy amendments? And then um, Conlon says, you know, that's an interesting idea, anti-secrecy amendments. I hadn't thought of that. Um, so he calls them anti-secrecy amendments, and, uh, and they, the Democratic Study Group sends out letters to every editorial page around the country. There are hundreds of editorials that are written in support of the Legislative Reorganization Act that they only heard about last week. Um, and 
Um, and the court, Conlin thinks that's why the bill passed. Um, I have an alternative uh, view because the letter that went out to the editorial writers said um, there's this, these very important anti-secrecy amendments uh, and they will be voted on next week in the Committee of the Whole in secret. <laughs> that's why they loved it, I, I think. I mean, who knows? But, um, but the... the chance for journalists to both show their real interest in openness and to ridicule the Congress simultaneously was irresistible. Okay. Um, At any rate, let me now try to sum this up and say why? I mean, what you can hear, I think, in in what I'm saying is is that there are local reasons um, in each case, it's a, it's a different story. They're not, no, no one has used the word transparency throughout this uh, period of 1968 to 1972. That comes much, much later. Um, there, there's, not a, um, there's not a sunshine coalition. There's not a, um, an, an open government partnership. There's none of these things that are part of a kind of pro-transparency movement among public interest organizations, uh, mostly on the left, but with considerable support on on the sort of libertarian right as well. That's just not part of what was going on here. Um, So what was going on, and why did did these openness reforms, um, although each happened for a different reason, resonate? Um, I, I know it, w- one parenthesis here. I know I'm speaking to a group in which there are a fair number of media and communication scholars, and I haven't mentioned journalism except in passing. Um, the parenthesis is the same thing happened in journalism in the same period, which is to say um, a, a fairly um, deferential, stodgy, uh, uninvestigative uh, news media in Washington um, became an a- aggressive, assertive, um, and investigative uh, news or set of news practices in the same era, 1960 to 1980. There's an enormous change, and we could talk about that more later because there's, there's very good evidence on that. Um, but the thing on which there's not sufficient evidence, but speaking uh, at a distinguished university here, I think this is really interesting, is that there were changes in higher education um, from in the U.S. beginning particularly after 1945 uh, and extending through this era. The changes I'm thinking about uh, are, not one, the growth of higher education, two, um, federal investment in higher education, but three, a change in the mood and ethos of the college classroom. Um, one historian uh, traces this in particular. Uh, I, I, it's a good example. I don't think it's necessarily the, the crucial influence, but he traces it to a faculty curriculum report. I mean, what could be more boring? 
Um, maybe congressional procedure could be more boring, but uh, this was a faculty uh, curriculum reform at Harvard that was published in 1945 as the so-called Red Book. The, the faculty had been charged with an effort to uh, revise general education. What the faculty was asked um, would you say is the knowledge most worth having that should be part of every Harvard student's education? They struggled with that for several years and came up with the following distressing conclusion that they didn't know. They had no consensus whatsoever on what the core curriculum should look like. Um, and so they came up with, as we tend to do in higher education, a kind of uh, cafeteria. Um, uh, and you know, here, here are the variety of courses you can take. You, some are from column A, some are from column B, some are from column C. Um, and students can elect which they want. Um, the faculty, I assume, at that time, took this as a very, took this as a defeat. I mean, they had really wanted uh, to come up with an answer, uh, to come up with the answer that we have no answer uh, was distressing for them. Um, but it seems to me that it was the kind of thing that many others at other universities and colleges were coming up with as well in different ways and it was ultimately a great triumph because it was beginning, it was, it was that kind of thing by which the ethos of higher education began to shift from handing down tradition to instilling uh, tools of critical inquiry. That this didn't all happen in one day or it didn't happen in one place. It was gradual, uh, but that 1945 was a key moment. Um, and so the kind of people who, in the 60s and after, um, would take leadership in society had been to colleges in which that notion of critical inquiry, of an open mind, which again goes back to John Moss uh, and, and the importance and uh, resonance of Cold War rhetoric that we are everything that the Soviet Union is not. The Western model, the Western ideal is ours. They're the closed society. We're the open society. They accept what is drilled into them by the government. We challenge everything. Um, uh, is that true? No, it's not true. But that... But, um, but was that the move in the ideals and the aspirations of higher education? I think it was. I think it is. Um, and it was in that way that um, I, I would like to see us integrate the history of higher education in the history of society itself. We stand maybe too often apart looking out at society. We're actually part of it we in higher education. And in this case, um, the changes in higher education offered an opening for opening. Um, and 
for creating a support structure, an emotional support structure um, for right to know. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for a fascinating lecture. We have half an hour for questions, up to 8 o'clock. We'll just pause for a moment as those with uh, other other engagements have to leave. Okay, we have uh, about half an hour for questions. I think there will be roving mics, yes. So um, who would like to get us started? We have a question right here in the front. The the mic will come to you. Um, I was at the University of Wisconsin in the 60s. Great place. did, Did what happened there happen here in the UK in terms of education and in terms of the impact on the culture? Uh, I, my impression is yes, but I'll turn to people who know more about that. Well, I wasn't active at the time, but in that way. <laughs> so I think maybe others can answer that too. I don't know. Maybe we should leave that question hanging. It will come back because you've raised that okay. challenge with us. Okay. What well, we have to do, and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that perhaps. Maybe someone will have some insight. Question here, please. Uh, the mic will come to you. Uh, my name is Paul Hudson. Thank you very much indeed uh, for your talk. Uh, the question I wanted um, to pose to you goes, I think, a little bit uh, wider than some of the considerations. That's not a criticism of you. can't deal with everything under the sun in the course of 50 minutes. But one of the things that concerns me, and I would like to know what the situation is in the States compared to the United Kingdom, a lot of people uh, in this country think that We've got um, not so much a democracy as rather a, a closing society. And in particular, and it's an interesting comparison with the situation in the Netherlands and in Sweden, the information that is given by top civil servants to their ministers is not at all made available until about 30 years afterwards. Now, in Sweden and the Netherlands... I think the public has a right to uh, know or is given access. In one case, six months. I don't know whether it's uh, the Netherlands or Sweden, and nine months in another case. Now, we don't have a system like that um, in the, the UK. What, 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 do you have a, any system that approaches that in the United States, where the top, um, I think you call them public servants, their advice is made available within a matter of months? Hmm. This seems to me particularly important... Because politicians are getting the blame. I mean, we have, not just in the present government, ministers who have no, uh, if you like, scientific background in the briefs that are necessary. For example, noticeably, we've had finance ministers who know nothing about economics. But probably they're the victims, in fact, of bad advice of top civil servants. We just don't know. Do you have anything like in in the United States which uh, overcomes that difficulty? 
the, the Freedom of Information Act is um, uh, aimed at that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's partially successful. Um, and, you know, you, you know the Freedom of Information Act here, too, um, which I believe it, this is the case in the U.K. as in the U.S., there, there are really two parts of a, of, of a FOIA legislation. There's a kind of proactive and a reactive part. The proactive says release as much information as you can from day one, from the beginning. Um, and that's, so that's been greatly accelerated in, in U.S. and U.K. and elsewhere. Um, this, this is one place where the Internet does come in. Um, and, you know, huge databases and great amounts of information that is collected by the government are made available, are made available sometimes in easily usable form, sometimes not in easily usable form, but it's there. You can find it on the websites of the different um, agencies and and bureaus in the government. Um, I, I'm sure more should be done in that regard. But that, that's sort of the proactive side. And if that really worked well, there might not be so much need for the reactive side. The reactive side is when government responds to specific requests filed under uh, the FOIA legislation. Um, uh, to mention... Ralph Nader one more time. He was an early critic of the American Freedom of Information Act. He called it the Freedom From Information Act. Um, this is 1973, I think. Um, and and he, he was right, uh, very right, in 1973. The am amendments to the Act in 1974 helped make it a more useful act, uh, in particular by putting in time limits for response. Now, even that doesn't do the job. Uh, and I've one um, reporter friend who says that, that, that she and her uh, colleagues send birthday cards to their FOIA requests because the time requirement is years, not weeks or months very often. Um, they, I mean, there are horrendous stories about this. Um, so at least with American journalists, if you ask them about the Freedom of Information Act, you, you get very much a mixed response. Um, they, they both love it and they really hate it uh, because it, it's so burdensome, it is so slow, um, and, and, so, and it sometimes takes the... I mean, one, one of the difficulties is that with the powerhouse news media uh, in economic financial trouble in the U.S. and the U.K. and elsewhere. Um, small organizations can sometimes do great reporting, but what happens if they run into trouble? What happens if they need a FOIA request and the FOIA request is denied? Uh, now they need a lawyer. Um, now they need to sue the government for relief. The New York Times can do that, even still, um, uh, and does it. There, there are a few law clinics at, at Harvard and at Yale that will do that on behalf of small organizations. But it, so anyway, it, it's, it's a constant uh, battle uh, in the U.S. There, and then, then there, there are other pieces entirely, like uh, 
laws and practices about declassification. Uh, how long must something be uh, held secret? Um, uh, so there, there are efforts now to, to, to declassify more and to declassify sooner in the U.S. But that, that all that goes back and forth. It depends on the administration. It, it depends on the ingenuity of outsiders seeking the information. So in short, there's no simple answer to your important question. Okay, thanks. We have a question. I think the next one from Sonia Livingston. Hi. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I'm thinking about um, the unintended consequences and particularly the negative unintended consequences of the right to know and a culture of openness. So can you say something about um, how things have gone wrong as a consequence? I'm thinking of um, double minutes, minutes for the website and the real minutes. I'm thinking of conversations held face to face because if they're written down, they're vulnerable to an FOI request. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps the worst, the ways in which many organizations now kind of follow the rules in order to be transparent, even when that's not always the sensible thing to do. Right, right. Um, uh, I, I, have, I have no real answer except to say um, yes. I mean, go government agencies um, are, um, can be, they aren't always, but they can be nimble at uh, doing things the way they want to do them um, anyway, re regardless of some apparently, you know, wonderful new um, transparency creating legislation. Uh, and um, they're, they're, so there's their back doors and their back rooms, even if the room where the decision used to be made is now open. Um, and the, I don't know what you can do about that except find the next. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a, um, you escalate the battle in some other uh, arena. And, and there, there is the, um, the other side of it, um, uh, which I'm a little skeptical about, but, uh, but I've, I've heard it from members of Congress, I've heard it from staff members of, uh, of members of staffers in, of members of Congress who say, we could get so much more done when we could do so much more secretly. Um, and these, I'm, I don't spend much time talking with conservative congressmen, but so these are liberals I'm talking about who say, um, in the good old days, uh, when we didn't have to be so transparent, you could work with people across the aisle. You could, the two parties could work together. You could make some kind of compromises. Um, you could vote against something that you told your constituents you were in favor of in order for some kind of compromise to be made, and so on. Uh, and they blame that on transparency practices. There's probably some truth in, in that, um, but I have the feeling that that's, that's not the whole story. And um, my... I, my image of what Congress used to be like, their image of what Congress used to be like is it was great in the old days. Um, my image is um, Senator Cooley telling the newcomers to shut up. Mm -hmm. A question from Sita here. 
Hi, thank you so much for that talk. It was um, uh, very invigorating, and uh, thanks for making history fun. <laughs> this is coming from somebody who spent a lot of time looking at the Administrative Procedure Act. Oh, my goodness. Um, which is like watching paint dry. Um, but uh, I, I, I want to come back to your initial hunch and your um, discovery that the 1960s wasn't necessarily the thing that motivated um, some of this um, developments around uh, the right to know and the birth of openness. Um, and part of that comes from my own experience. Uh, I've just finished four years at a think tank, two years in Washington, D.C. And I don't know if this was the case in the 1960s or before, but one of the things that is very prevalent um, in elite culture is this idea that you need to convince somebody that they've already come up with the thing that you're talking about, okay. right? So you, um, you, you build authorship and authority in elites by this, process, by this cultural practice. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if, um, if there's more to the sort of um, moments of social upheaval and cultural change that did, in fact, influence um, elites but maybe not necessarily in ways that were acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And I, I think maybe mm -hmm. what I'm asking is, is to sort of engage with the theory of social change and how that involves not just elites, but a lar larger ecology of people. And to be more specific, I can't actually remember the name of the individual that was dealing with informed consent and medical research, but if you think of the larger context of that particular case, I'm presuming that right. that is a person that was talking about the Tuskegee experiments, right? Uh, and, and informed the, the, consent. The, um, Dr. Guy. Beecher, no. But, okay. But the, the Tuskegee uh, experiment revelations are a couple years after that. So I'm just wondering if you can talk about sort of the, the cultural location of elites yes. and how yes. they might be absorbing, but not necessarily acknowledging mm -hmm. um, certain a certain ethos mm -hmm. in the air, right? The 1960s were a very significant moment, um, also leading into the 1970s. And it's, it's possible for me to see um, this process of elites ac acknowledging that, but not necessarily naming it. Right, right. No, thank you. Um, uh, let's see. The, the, um, what's his name? I'm trying to, I, I, the, the, the whistleblower on Tuskegee, um, he's Peter Buxton, uh, he, he was, I think I'll get back to your question, but um, Peter Buxton was um, uh, a technician in the public health service in San Francisco. He heard about the Tuskegee experiment, um, which many of you know was, um, a, a, a study of the impact of syphilis, long-term impact of syphilis on African-Americans in a community in Alabama, um, African-American men. And they, it began in the 1930s. Um, it was, it was con continuing on into the 19, um, early 70s, I guess. Uh, uh, even though a cure for syphilis had been found in the late 1940s. Uh, so exactly what they were doing is, a, is something of a mystery. Um, but uh, they still wanted to follow these people, but they could have saved their lives and didn't. 
Uh, so he, he heard about this. He assumed that uh, he would just report to his superiors and they would notify the right people in the hierarchy and the experiment would be closed down. Instead, they put him off for some years. And then he kept, he kept saying, that this, I can't let this go. So um, he tried again, the same thing happened, then he said, I'm going to the press. Um, he, a friend of a friend was in the Associated Press, he went to her, anyway, that, that led to the revelation, it's in my book somewhere, but I think it's 1972. Um, oh, it is, so, uh, because uh, she, she goes to, um, she wants it in a Washington newspaper, uh, and she goes to the Washington Star because the Washington Post is obsessed with this thing called Watergate. Um, and she's not sure it'll get on page one. The Washington Star will get on page one. It gets on page one. The, the whole so-called Tuskegee experiment is over in the next few days. Um, you know, it, it was... So part, part of one thing that sorry, I'm curious about with that is if he'd gone to the media in 1966 or so, 65, whenever he first heard about it, would they have seen it as a, such a story? They knew it was hot uh, in 1972. That, um, would, would, they have, would it have been so clear in 1966 or, or would he have been rebuffed by the media too? What, you know, how, what is changing at what rate when? Um, uh, and at what point do the winds of change touch on uh, people in some, with some position of authority? Um, some, some of this goes way back. I mean, it's interesting that, that you know, Kennedy didn't do that much with consumer rights, but he but the Bill of Rights notion, Bill of Consumer Rights notion is, um, was irresistible. Every single, con- I mean, every consumer, organized consumer advocate organization said, as President Kennedy told us, as President Kennedy asserted, we ha- consumers have a Bill of Rights. Uh, they have a right to know. They, and so so in, he's in touch, I mean, he he has the campaign speech because he thinks there's something hot going on with consumers. Something is changing. There's some dissatisfaction in the country. Um, maybe he can tap into that. But then he gives his speech, and uh, consumer organizations that are part of a, um, a, a consumer movement, a labor movement, uh, then you know, bounce off of Kennedy and use him to legitimate what they were already doing anyway. Um, so th- th- this it moves back and forth. I, I, I'm, I, I was struck in, in the research by how, how many of these uh, efforts were seemed to be cases where elites were ahead of what was going on in the social movements. There, there was one wonderful uh, example in the environmental area where uh, a reporter, foreign correspondent for the New York Times, Philip Shabakov, um, 
1970 or so, uh, he wants to do more environmental reporting. He goes to his bureau chief in Washington uh, who says, um, no, that's too narrow a focus. Um, we're not interested. And, um, and in fact, the environmental groups and the media don't cover, they basically don't cover the, uh, the passage of the environmental impact statement. The, the, the environmental organizations that's constituting a part of the social movement um, are, are not legislation-oriented at that point. That, that comes a little later. Um, and Shabakov recalls that when he did come up with environmental stories for his, for his editors, uh, he got he would often get responses like, "Come on, Shabakov, you 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 did a story on the end of the world last month." Um, they, they, the media was not on top of this um, at, at a time when leaders in the Congress were. So I mean the. I'm struck by the relative prescience of people I too often dismiss, I think. Okay. Now, there are lots of questions flooding in now. I'm going to take three together. You had a question way back. You had a question right back there. And in the interest of spreading the gentleman, the most shared is the time. But take all three together and then see if we get a chance for another round. Relatively briefly, if you can. Yeah, sure. I'll be quick. My name is Ines. I'm a PhD candidate here. And um, I'd like to come back to your concluding argument about the importance of the um, reform in education. Now, I do find that it's a very convincing regarding the way uh, transparency resonated among the American people. However, it appears to me that sort of this very um, characteristic, I, I would say, of challenging authority and, you know, challenging a specific mindset is actually a matter of personality. And literally, if I just look around among my friends, it's not nece necessarily the most educated that challenge authority. Thus, um, my question to you would be, to which degree or do you at all see I'm going to say personality characteristics that are shared among those people you mentioned within different areas people who challenge authority. Okay, Thanks. let's hold that. Mm -hmm. Take the mm -hmm. next question, the guy in the back in the... Uh, Hi, uh, my name is Jacob. I work in publishing. Um, I've got another question about sort of the grey areas of FOI and that kind of thing. Um, I see it as there are, well, to put it very briefly, two sides. There's between the private eye sides of Freedom of Information, private eye being the magazine in the UK. Uh, they tend to push for freedom of information with things like tax avoidance, etc. Arguably, I would play good causes. Mm -hmm. On the other side of it, there's tabloid journalism. Again, to paint it in broad strokes, it's a bad way to do it, but to do it briefly, I need to. Uh, and that side of things would be stars stumbling out of clubs and their houses, not necessarily in any kind of state of moral sensibility, which is the argument that they would put forward for having freedom of information the tabloids would suggest that they are to be the moral policemen. Private Eye would suggest that they are that their roles are to hold people to account, be it governments or companies, etc. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could say something about where the line could be drawn, uh, where freedom of information becomes invasion of privacy, or whether freedom of information needs a tool to keep it as a useful tool for government and doesn't just become prying into things. Thanks. Okay, let's hold that. And the gentleman in the motion. Just want to bring it up to date by um, 
if you could tell us about the, the state of Freedom of Information Act in, in the US, so in the UK, here it seems to be under attack. You know, the, the Conservative government are looking to, uh, to amend it uh, under whatever that means. And just wondered if you could tell us, in the history of the FOI in the US, has it ever come under sustained attack at being uh, watered down? And what is the current state? Is it, is it um, accepted? And that, that big expenditure that you talked about, is that accepted as a legitimate form of, of, of government expenditure? Okay. Um, personality. Um, uh, you make a good point, and I don't know what to do with it. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, we... Um, I, I would have been a... I'll, I'll, I'll make a terrible confession. I've never filed an FOI request. Um, uh, so I'm... Uh, and I should have, but I... Um, but I didn't know what it was I wanted to know about. <laughs> um, so... Um, right, right, right. So... Um, but some people... I mean, there are some famous... FOI requesters who are just pestering the government about every th- which thing. Um, that's a different personality type, and it, it is a factor. Um, but how you integrate that into a um, you know, kind of social historical theory, um, uh, I, I don't know. And, um, on behalf of the, the, the more wimpy side of the uh, world, I would say that some of the people who were uh, were important in in these efforts, particularly in, in the environmental side, were uh, kind of cerebral professors um, who kept insisting. One of them from Indiana University kept insisting to the Senate that you needed some mechanism um, to force force government to do what it didn't want to do on its own. Um, uh, so he was personally maybe a little mousy, but um, he, he had a very good idea and he pushed it. Um, uh, on, on good and bad efforts uh, and uses of FOI, um, yeah, I, I, I think your or FOI or, inv- or journalistic investigations in general um, uh, my book about why um, why we need an unlovable press says that you know that basically that um, there is no easy way to separate them um, and uh, yes we can we can make judgments and should make judgments about what uses of the power of the press are um, to be applauded and which are to be condemned. Um, uh, they're, they're both kinds, but, but we, I don't think we should, by law, um, apart from laws already on the books to, that protect uh, privacy and protect people from um, libel and slander, um, uh, I, I don't know how you can separate out the... the uh, you know, ex- except by example and moral condemnation, the kinds you don't want to encourage. And bringing FOIA up to date, um, uh, uh, you know, there, there, there may be some um, journalists in the 
room who can do this better than I can, either for the U.S. or U.K. Um, what I can say in, as a general overview is that th in the U.S., this never gets fully resolved. There, there, there are efforts to reform um, uh, the Freedom of Information Act in the Congress at this moment. Um, there have been maybe four significant revisions of the law um, over its history already. And, there are, and, and there's, without changing the law, there are variations depending on how, um, how a leadership in a particular presidential administration, what their general attitude is. Now, it, it, by general impression, is that every new president comes in saying, oh, I'm entirely in favor of transparency, um, and then um, they back off of that once they're in office. Um, in, you know, in, including Clinton, including Obama, others. Um, so, so, so there there have been lots of ups and downs with the the quality of of the uses and enforcement of the act. The second to take you, Craig. You did have a question. I'll give you a chance to ask in the last Thanks. thirty seconds. Michael, that was a wonderful talk. Thanks. I'm going to read the book. You came very close in the last comments to something I wondered about, which was saying there might be a cyclical pattern here, not a linear one. Your period in your story was a fairly linear pattern. There was a rise of the right to know. What about early 20th century muckraking journalism and Upton Sinclair and uh, these sorts of things? Is there, there are sort of periods of greater. It's investigative journalism wasn't born in the period, this period when there was a turn to investigative journalism, but it was renewed after a period of relatively compliant, stodgy journalism. Do you think there's some sort of cyclical pattern on a longer time frame? I, I, I think there's cyclical elements, yes. Um, uh, but I do... I do think, um, here, uh, in this respect, I'll, I'll agree with Hillary Clinton that you know, if, if you change the laws, that, that re, um, you, know, you, you get to a, a, a new plateau. And could you fall off of it? You could. Um, and there's a certain amount of variation with whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats in office and whether... Um, whether there's you're in the midst of a war or whether there's a quasi war on terror or I mean all all those things factor into it too. Um, I, I, I was struck in the research by how how much particular events and accidents and what happened. I you know I you know as you know I'm I'm a social scientist. I don't want to come to that. I also don't want personality to be a, a, a factor that explains things. But sometimes they do. Um, and, uh, and I think we're just, you know, as, as historians, we're sort of stuck with that. Um, uh, and, but I do think that, you know, the, the, um, the knobs and dials and all of, of openness were reset in this period. Um, it may well, this would be a, a, a harder to figure out, but it may well be that the, the, the DNA of the Internet, which I 
dismissed earlier, but the DNA of the Internet were these folks uh, who said openness uh, is something we value and, uh, and that the Internet, as it evolved, it could have evolved in somewhat different ways, um, helped, has helped provide that with all of its complications. Well, that's a great thought to be left hanging in mind. We've reached age o'clock. I'm sorry, we have to stop there. Apologies if your questions are going to ask. But do either ask them in person to Michael if you go there, or through Twitter. They can be asked that way. And Michael is on Twitter. He may respond. Or he may not. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. Terrific.